Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and as always, it's the Centered From Reality podcast. I hope your... What day is today? Wednesday. That's Wednesday. Yeah, I hope your Wednesday's going pretty well. Well, the cool weather's gone here in Chicago. It's heating up. It's windy. Yeah, nothing I'm too excited about. I got my last shot of the rabies vaccine today, so happy to not have to go back to the hospital. I, I was starting to get to know the people at the emergency room, and that's always the sign that you're like, all right, it's, it's time to get out of here, time to move on. So yeah, glad to have that behind me. Anyways, just the usual, doing some job applications, studying, working on the side, you know, just, just staying busy. Probably not going to run today. It's a little too hot. Um, a little too hot and windy. There's something about running in a hot wind that just uh, sucks. <laughs> Anyways, I wanted to start and say that I finally had the time to read The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. And all I can say is that maybe it's one of the best books I've ever read. It really looks into that lost generation era after World War I, and it's through the lens of expatriates who are living in Paris. Some are British, Scottish, American, probably missing something. But it's just interesting because they, they live in Paris, and then they go on holiday to San Fermin in Pamplona, Spain, which, by the way, is a great city. It's where I realized I did not want to be a lawyer, but that's a whole other story. But basically, they go there to see the running with, of the bulls and see some bullfights and enjoy just a month of debauchery during the festivities. And while there, basically, the book's kind of about how the order that was kept amongst this group of friends and lovers, I guess, was civil in Paris, and it seems to fall apart and results in jealousy, love, love triangles, toxic masculinity, drunken fights, and this kind of strange sense of like chaos and hopelessness, even though they're in this beautiful place seeing this festival before a lot of the West knew about it outside of Spain, especially Americans. And from what I've gathered, one could hide money and frills in France, but basically the veil's off When the group goes to Spain, there's this directness and truth on the holiday. Nothing is hidden, and all their inner demons kind of come out, usually when they're drinking late at night, but yeah. And I mention this because it seems like we're almost in this period of another lost generation. It seems like we're in this time where the veil of society, the veil of wealth and frills and civility and class, it's all kind of coming off, and we're seeing this kind of breakdown of civil society across the world. And I don't know, um, I'm probably being somewhat hyperbolic, but as I was sitting there reading this book last night, I just thought of how it really does feel like it's applying to these times. Um, It's just interesting to look back at kind of this lost generation, which which has always kind of fascinated me. But I'll move on, but I just wanted to start with that. Uh, Great book if you haven't read it. My goal is to read um, all of his books this summer. Uh, I have uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls coming. It's a look at the Spanish Civil War, which has always fascinated me. Yeah. So moving on today, I want to talk about the growing relationship or alliance, whatever you want to call it, between Iran and Russia and why I think it's somewhat the fault of the West, or at least we've pushed Iran into a corner. Um, And then I also want to talk about a bipartisan bill which passed the House and it's protecting same-sex marriage and it could have issues in the Senate. And then I want to talk about Trump 2024 and how it's kind of starting to look like a repeat of 2016. I'll tell you why in a bit, but first... Just some highlights of things I noticed happening around the country today. I'll start with news that things are not looking great in Maryland. There's this guy, Dan Cox. He's a Trump-endorsed candidate, and he won the Republican primary for governor of Maryland. And 
Honestly, this one's kind of weird to me because Larry Hogan's the current governor. He's he's a Republican, but he's a never Trump Republican. Never been a Trump fan. Seems like a moderate. And he's term limited out, so he can't run again. But he's super popular. Like he's over 60% liked by Democrats. Over three three quarters of Republicans support him. And so he's really popular. He's a bipartisan guy. He's really good at appealing to moderates from what I've gathered, which I like. And so it's weird that basically the new Republican nominee is a Trump-style candidate. And apparently the Democratic primary is too close to call right now, so they're watching that. But I guess you have to hope the Democrats have a chance because I don't want any Trump-endorsed governors or secretary of states getting into power because they really do want to change how we run our elections, and it's troubling to me. So pretty much if Trump puts his endorsement on a candidate, that's a solid no for me. And, you know, there are talks. Some people hope Larry Hogan's going to run in 2024. I saw him on Meet the Press last Sunday, and he, he kept talking about his record and how he appeals to moderates and all this stuff, which I think he would probably be a great president, personally. He's quite aligned with a lot of my values. But I don't think, again, there's an appetite for someone like him. I just see how far the left has gone, and I see where the right is. And Larry Hogan seems like a persona non grata for that energy. Also, uh, moving to Georgia for a second, according to the New York Times, Georgia's prosecutors said that 16 people who had formed this alternative slate of uh, 2020 electors for Donald Trump could be facing criminal charges, so things are getting more interesting there. Also, our buddy Rudy Giuliani has been called to testify. And, you know, <laughs> I just have to say, in all honesty, that kind of sounds like something I would like to watch. Um, the guy's a mess. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of him. Um, I'm not trying to shame him. But he always does make for good theater. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's going out there. So that's, that's going to be a blast. And one last thing on a little bit lighter note before we get into the heavy stuff again. Uh, Netflix is really not doing well. So let's remember their first quarter of 2022 saw a significant drop in subscribers. And now things are looking even worse because Netflix just said it lost about a million subscribers in the second quarter of this year, which is its biggest such loss. And I've been reading over the last few weeks that investors were really waiting for the end of this quarter to get the numbers to come back to see what would be next. Not good. Not good numbers whatsoever. Um, I think part of the problem is that they're not owned. Like, this is at least my theory, is that Netflix is not owned by a major studio like Paramount Plus or Disney Plus where they have access to all these franchises. So they either have to create their own, do remakes, buy content, or create lesser ones, or maybe franchises that have not been as big. Like, like they have some Marvel shows on there that they've made Netflix originals for, for example, but they're not the big names. Like, there's no Loki on there or Moon Knight. There's no series like that that they could produce. And now they've become hyper-focused on big blockbusters like Red Notice last year, which was entertaining but awful. At the same time, there's just no substance. They also focus on romantic comedies. And it seems like the algorithm's just determining, like, the most milk toast bubblegum thing possible. And it just looks like Netflix is going to need to shift their model. And again, like I've talked about before, I think it's also because Netflix used to be kind of the, the big sheriff in town here. But now there's so many other competing streaming platforms that people are not getting all of them anymore. So like what I do is I kind of cycle of through them. Like I'll, I'll have Hulu for a few months and then I'll go to Netflix. And I'm sure a lot of people do stuff like that, you know? So yeah, and Netflix is never going to be like an HBO either. So <laughs> it's tough. It's, it's really tough for them. Anyways, to what I want to talk about first, 
Iran and Russia. So the New York Times has reported, I think it was today, that Vladimir Putin visited Tehran, where Iran's, uh, Iran, sorry, Supreme Leader endorsed the war in Ukraine. And this signals a stronger alliance with Moscow. And before I get into my thoughts on why this could have been prevented, which I think it could have been, let's start with the background. So last week, to put into context, there were reports that Iran was sending drones to aid Russian forces in the eastern part of Ukraine and just to be sent to Russia in general. And I saw a lot of differing views, like I was listening to some foreign policy experts, ex-Obama foreign staff, um, and there were some who thought that this was maybe exaggerated or just speculation, but this meeting that happened yesterday between the two countries uh, does seem to confirm those worries. And I'm, I mean, I'm not really surprised, but moving on here, Politico writes in quotes, Russian President Vladimir Putin won staunch support from Iran on Tuesday for his country's military campaign in Ukraine, with Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei saying the West opposes an independent and strong Russia. During the meeting, it, it seems like Supreme Leader Khamenei shares Putin's distrust in NATO, he said. If the road would have been open to NATO... It will not recognize any limit or any boundary. He also said that if Moscow had not acted first, the Western alliance would have waged a war. And this is a sentiment that's been echoed by Putin's own rhetoric, right? It's the idea that NATO is the one that's the war hawk. NATO's been waiting. No one in the West wants a strong and independent Russia. Iran is next. We need to work together. Look, it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing here. Like, I personally don't think that there was ever a push by most of the West to get rid of Russia. It was more like we need to sanction Russia because they're a bad actor. And so I could see why the sanctions would piss you off and make you think the West is out to get you. But you also have to look in the mirror and wonder why the sanctions are there, right? And so I think it's a bullshit argument. But as I will get into in a minute, it does make a lot of sense, I guess, based on how both countries have been made pariahs through the sanctions I'm talking about and just the diplomatic tensions that we're seeing. And then also invading a sovereign free country doesn't help particularly either, but we're not going to talk about that. So now from what I've gathered, there, there weren't a lot of like, I guess you could say tangible outcomes from this meeting other than this kind of symbolic alliance. I would also note that this was good for propaganda, especially for Putin's domestic audience. As Russia has become increasingly isolated, insular, Putin can kind of show this to his domestic audience, his supporters, to give him kind of some international clout and tell his people that, hey, look, there are still some countries that ally with us. And the timing is also interesting. I'm sure it's not a coincidence because Biden just wrapped up his meetings in the Middle East with places like uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, talking about oil reserves, Saudi releasing more oil, alliances, weapons, all that fun. And so it's, it's pretty timing. Now, I don't know why Putin thinks by meeting with Iran, it's going to bring back his international clout. It's not. But, you know, desperate times, I guess, call for desperate measures, something, something like that. Um, now, I think what is interesting here is that I, I was just learning this. I actually didn't know this because I don't know a lot about the history of Russia and Iran, like like their relationships with one another. But I guess they have not always been good friends. They've actually some, been somewhat quasi-enemies. Um, during World War II, Russia actually occupied parts of Iran and then refused to leave. And since then, they've actually been kind of hot and cold involving their relationship. So the fact that they've gotten closer is evidence to me that Iran is pretty much desperate and needs some friends. 
I'm going to read this little segment from Politico that I think sums this up pretty well. It says here in quotes, Backed into a corner by the West and its regional rivals, the Iranian government is ramping up uranium enrichment, cracking down on dissent, and grabbing headlines with, os with optimistic hardline stances intended to keep the Iranian currency, the real, from crashing. Without sanctions relief in sight, Iran's tactical partnership with Russia has become one of survival, even as Moscow appears to be undercutting Tehran in the black market oil trade, end quotes. But it's, I, I think that's a great way to put it. It just seems like Iran has had a chance and they're getting desperate. And I think that's what disappoints me is because there was a time where it looked like Iran was opening up, becoming less of a fundamentalist state, and they were trying. But, you know, after pulling out of the nuclear deal, it seems like the radicals inside of the government were able to say, see, look, the West is bad. We can't trust them. We can't lead towards them. And a lot of the people who actually opened up to the United States have been purged from office. And there's just not a lot of support by a lot of people inside of there for this type of, um, type of politics. And now they're going down a more radical track. And it's not good for the Iranian people. It's not good for the world. And it's just ironic to me because you had like the John Boltons, the Iran Warhawks in Washington, D.C., who opposed the nuclear deal and wanted more of a pretty much a just high sanction regime or even like escalated tensions with Iran. And they said, you know, allowing, uh, allowing Iran into the nuclear deal would make the world less safe. But it's ironic because now it seems like Iran is more dangerous and the region is worse off. So the hypocrisy there is irritating. And moving back a bit, this stronger alliance also worries me. And it worries me mainly because it seems like this Ukrainian war may not be ending soon. Like, we've already kind of known that, but now it, now it seems like because issues could be expanding outside of the borders. And this is where we could see issues going forward, because now we have another alliance and another actor added to this complicated entanglement, right? And as you get more parties involved in these alliances, it just complicates everything around the world, and it's never good for ending the conflict quickly. Let me give you an example. So... Israel still has close ties to Putin, but also has grown a bit closer with some of the gold, uh, Gulf states, right? So Israel is friends with us. They're also friends with Putin. That's a problem. Then the, then the United States is in a close relationship and military alliance with Saudi Arabia, whom Iran hates and is in a quasi-conflict with Yemen over that, over arming different rebel groups there, right? But then Turkey is back and forth with Russia it has found itself opposite Russia in conflicts in Syria and Libya. It has even sold weapons and drones to the Ukrainian forces. But then Ankara, which is Turkey, hasn't imposed sanctions on the Kremlin, and they rely on the Russian market for a lot of resources and goods. Oh yeah, and I forgot to mention that Saudi Arabia and the UAE have declined to pump more oil because they have a plan approved with their alliance with Moscow. So fuck, like this is complex and just shows how there are so many overlapping alliances and it's like you have you have some treaties signed by like the Western allies with one of these Eastern ones who's also then going behind their back and working with the other side. It's like this is just rife for some sort of escalation, in my opinion. And like I, I've always thought the war in Yemen or I would say more the just humanitarian crisis caused by the Saudis in Yemen always has seemed like a perfect breeding ground for something spewing out of it just because you have so many actors involved in it. I will add, I guess, you know, I'll be nice. I'll end this segment, though, with something kind of positive. So also Erdogan, Rashid Erdogan of Turkey, has also met with Putin. And 
it does seem like there's some productive talks on grain exports. Because let's remember, the world is going to have a huge starvation crisis if something isn't done. Now, I will believe it when I see it. But obviously, for global hunger, this is crucial. Apparently, the UN, Russian, Ukrainian, and Turkish officials have all reached some sort of agreement on aspects of a deal to ensure the export of over 22 million tons of desperately needed grain. Right now, as I mentioned last Friday, they are trapped in the Black Sea, and they're going to try to get those out of there. Now, this does come as just this morning, though, I saw that Sergei Lavrov, Putin crony, foreign minister, has said that special operations in Ukraine are now expanding beyond just the east. So it looks like they want to escalate again. Honestly, I don't know what the hell they're doing, but it's kind of a, I guess you could call this kind of a cup somewhat empty with a few drops in it still, because like, there's really no good news here, but if they can get grain out, I'm all for it at this time. And moving on, I think it was last week, Ted Cruz said in an interview, I think it was on a podcast, that he did not think the Supreme Court ruling on gay marriage was correct or constitutional. He used that strange argument that's becoming more prominent on the right, that it was not part of our 200-year history and was not envisioned at the time of our founding. Basically, the argument goes like, there are no rights that should be granted unless they were deeply embedded in American history. And this somewhat seems to be the same argument that they've made about Roe, contraceptives, and maybe even interracial marriage. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but from what I've gathered, it's a pretty flimsy argument, and people like Ted Cruz should know better. But they're basically trying to use the courts to do their political bidding for them because they don't think they can or they're cowards. I don't know. But like to think about that is that rights are only things that are deeply embedded in American history is insane. Like women couldn't vote over 100 years ago. We had slavery. Like, like I, could, I could go on all day about how there's obviously unenumerated rights that have evolved over time, right? But <sighs> I guess we can't talk about that because, like, Ted Cruz was once considered some constitutional genius, you know? Um, I'm not hearing any of that anymore. He's obviously a grifter, but I don't want to talk about him anymore. He irritates me. So anyways, I've talked about how Democrats need to be less reactive and more prepared, right? Proactive? Is that the word? Yeah. Um, it looks like they actually may be doing something good. So the Hill notes today that, in quotes, the House passed a bill on Tuesday to protect marriage equality, a direct response to an opinion from Justice Clarence Thomas last month that called for reversing multiple decisions that enshrined LGBTQ rights. And the bill is named the Respect for Marriage Act, and I believe it was passed, yeah, let me see, I have the numbers here, 267 to 157. Again, that's in the House. And along with protecting um, gay marriage or providing provisions to protect gay marriage, it would also put in some protections for interracial marriage. Like, side note, it's crazy that in 2024, this is the conversation we're having. But anyways, some good news, though, is that 47 Republicans joined the Democrats in supporting the measure. I mean, still 157 didn't. But of course, also seven Republicans did not vote. I guess it's interesting to me that so many Republicans voted against it, but also 47 is better than nothing. I think the, the, the 47 who voted with the Democrats know the midterms are coming and don't really want it on the record that they're voting against gay marriage, right? Public opinion's already shifting due to Roe, gun violence. I don't think they need to be against gay marriage as well. Like, you know, there's a lot of moderates in this country. Like, gay marriage is fairly—like, a majority of Americans want gay marriage, so— 
Again, the Republicans, the majority of Republicans are against what the majority want, but anyways. Now, I would not get too optimistic, though, because it passed the House and needs to go to the Senate, and let us remember that the Senate is right now 50-50, Kamala Harris has the tiebreaker, and people like Ted Cruz have already expressed how they do not believe gay marriage should have been legalized nationally. And, you know, side note, I remember the days when the House was the radical one, and the Senate was seen as this kind of more pragmatic one because instead of representing a district, they have to represent the entirety of a state, basically. And so they kind of have to appeal to different groups, not just their base, right? But those days are over. Now, I don't think Manchin will be an issue. I'm sure Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, all of them will support this. Mitt Romney's always interesting to me because he's quite, quite a social conservative, but he doesn't seem like he wants to enforce them on others which is something I've always kind of supported with him. But other than those three, I'm sure there will be some more, but it's going to be tough because we have to remember that they need 10 because if they can get 10 Republicans and all the Democratic senators to support it, they can overcome the filibuster, which has a 60-vote threshold. And at this time, we're just going to have to wait and see because I don't know if they can get 10. I'm just thinking about some of the whack jobs out there these days, but I guess we can hope. We can, we can hope. That's all, that's all I can think of. Now, if I were Mitch McConnell, or if I were in his shoes, I would almost want this to pass to take some heat off of all the other issues, right? Because I don't think Mitch McConnell and them actually wanted Roe to be overturned right before a midterm. And yeah, I, I, I would want this to pass. Call me crazy, but I think it would be the best for them if this passes, just politically. Finally, Moving on, last week I talked about Biden and how 2024 looks abysmal for him. This week I want to turn to the Republican side. Increasingly, and this is something I would have not predicted, it seems like Trump's revenge tour or conspiracy tour, whatever you want to call it, his MAGA roadshow, has basically not helped him get unified support inside of the GOP. It looks like he's actually kind of divided the party more since now, that could be good for Trump, but I'll get to that in a bit. So I've seen polls all over from Pew to the New York Times to 538 that show that only about, uh, actually, no, let me go back. It shows that an average of 50% of Republicans actually said they wouldn't vote for Trump in 2024. I'll repeat, they would not vote for Trump in 24, and they want someone else. But at the same time, a little bit over 49%. Now, I've seen 46 in other polls, 49 in other but about, let's say, 48% say they still want Trump. So you pretty much have this split where almost 50% of the party wants Trump and the other 50% wants someone else. And I guess in a sense this is good because this is the first time that I can remember that Trump is not popular with the majority of Republicans. I would imagine that the 1-6 hearings are not actually changing his voters' minds but they're showing his supporters that Trump could be tough to support just because of the baggage. And Fox News aired something where they were asking people on the ground about this. And all these people said, I love Trump. He's the best president ever. He changed the country for the best. But I don't think we should vote for him in 2024. And this is a change. It's something that's new. Now, the problem with this, though, is that there's, there's basically this 50-50 split between supporting Trump and not. And the problem here is that there's really no alternative, right? There's no solid alternative. 
and that 50% of people who do not want Trump, again, are divided amongst several other candidates. For example, Ron DeSantis, according to the New York Times, emerged as the top rival to Trump with only 25%. Then you have others like Ted Cruz, Mike Pompeo, LOL, by the way, Larry Hogan, and more, who all are in like single digits. So again, you have... You have something that could be good for Trump because a crowded GOP field is exactly what helped us get Trump in 2016, right? People who do not want Trump basically could not coalesce behind one candidate and instead vote for a plurality of others, right? In 2016, it was Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Jeb Bush, Chris Christie. Uh, I'm missing some, but you get the point. And so the problem here is that Trump just needs a plurality, and that could be easy especially because I've heard he's going to announce sooner than later and start campaigning. And once I think he gets out there again, it could be his race because I've honestly heard, and I could just see it in interviews, that Ron DeSantis seems like not a very cool guy. He seems cold and kind of like a bully. And I think that could be tough on the national stage because look, Trump's not a good guy. I'm not defending Trump, but he's energetic and entertaining and funny. And I think that is in his favor. Anyways, like it's it's definitely too close to tell, but it just seems like if there's a plurality of candidates and Trump, it could fall in Trump's favor. I am just glad I am not a GOP official right now because it's a nightmare. Um, now Charlie Sykes just to end on a on on this note. Charlie Sykes on the Bulwark brought up a point that I find pretty hilarious. Yesterday on the podcast, they talked about this hypothetical scenario that Ron DeSantis wins the Republican primary over Trump. Then Trump basically freaks out and claims fraud on the right. And, you know, he basically tries to suppress votes on the right. He, he basically says, no, DeSantis stole this from me. And it becomes all, all like 2020 over again. And maybe you'd see a Republican civil war. Maybe Trump breaks away and does his own thing. Who knows? But I would just love to see some chaos in the GOP, honestly. It would, it would be good because we, we all know that Trump would do this, right? He's not loyal to the GOP. They just are a platform for him, a launch pad. Like, he doesn't need anything, really. That's just where he found a base that supports him. So, yeah, it's interesting to see, but I think 2024 is going to be, to be honest, kind of a shit show. That's that's what I'm seeing there. So, anyways, thanks for listening. A little bit shorter episode today. It's been a busy day, but uh, I'll be back Friday with another episode. And until then, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, YouTube, Podbean, Spotify, whatever else there is. Take care. And Breed the Sun also rises if you need a good summer read. Thank you.